up? What's up? It's that time again. We got some real good stuff for you today. It's week three of the NFL preseason, which means dress rehearsal day. We'll see the starters get some legitimate minutes in most of the preseason games this weekend. And so we got that to look forward to on the NFL front. When it comes to college football, I got a special guest to come in and talk to us about all things. His predictions for the playoffs, sleeper players and teams to look forward to, and a whole lot more. In the NBA, Boogie Cousins looks like he's done for just about the whole year and possibly his career. Tough break for him and the Lakers. All that, along with a lot more. So sit back, relax, and listen up to episode 33 of The Format. regular season dress rehearsal is here but uh first some interesting nfl notes or notes i thought were interesting first tom brady now has a major weapon back so a lot of people with grunk gone to retirement were wondering what tom brady's gonna do i have no idea why it's not like he hasn't won without grunk before or with less than a star-studded receiving core for the most part during his career he hasn't had that i mean realistically that's the case right and then when you give him an elite wide receiver, like when he had Randy Moss, he literally rewrote the record books. So you see what happens when you give a guy that's already great, a great weapon. Josh Gordon got reinstated by the NFL. And uh, if he can stay clean and sober, he's got a real chance to reignite his career with the best quarterback ever. Not a bad option, I'd say. Last season, let's look at this. Tom Brady threw for over 4,300 yards and 29 touchdowns with only 11 picks. And some people were saying that he didn't have a great year. Now, those type of numbers most quarterbacks in the league would pay for. So that tells you the type of lofty standards that he has set for himself and for the position. Some people say he's on the way out and uh, that he isn't what he is, being the GOAT. He's not the GOAT. He's the LOAT. The luckiest of all time. Even after those numbers he had last year and winning yet another Super Bowl, if you're counting, that's number six. Regardless, having a weapon of that caliber back, that might very well just get him lucky number seven. Not that he couldn't have found a way to get it regardless. It's about time we stop betting against the Patriots. Remember something I said way back? It's time to bring it back again. Hashtag Butt Belichick. Last season, Tom Brady had 18 touchdowns with Josh Gordon and 13 without him. He averaged 8 yards per attempt with him and 7 without him. 303 passing yards per game with him and 246 passing yards per game without him. That shows you the type of impact Josh Gordon has on this offense. And if he can, like I said, stay clean and sober this year and stay on the field, the Patriots offense could be even more explosive. Think about this. They can run it with Sony Michelle. We saw that late in the year last year. They can throw it to the slide with Edelman and then you get an elite weapon on the outside with Josh Gordon, and reports are that they're going to have a top 10 defense this year, all elements to another Super Bowl rerun come February, at least in the AFC. 
Now to another team that some picked for the Super Bowl, the Cleveland Browns. Guess who we're going to talk about now? You got it. Quarterback Baker Mayfield. He got himself in some more hot water. Although, personally, I didn't see anything too much wrong with what he said. Um, so, here's the deal. In a recently released GQ Magazine article, Baker Mayfield said, I'm paraphrasing here, he couldn't believe the Giants drafted new quarterback Daniel Jones and then said it blows his mind and that you have to be a winner. A lot of people in the media got all riled up about that, but realistically, Baker Mayfield was only saying out loud what the rest of us have said since it happened. I don't see a big deal, but clearly it must have cast Baker in a bad light, right? Because a couple days later, he walked back the comments and he said that they were taken out of context and that he spoke with Daniel Jones to kind of smooth things over. At the end of the day, I kind of believe him about being taken out of context and that him either didn't say that or that he didn't say that in the way that it came across in print. Because when have we ever known Baker Mayfield to stand back from anything that he said and truly believes, right? Speaking of Daniel Jones, last night against the Bengals, he led another excellent outing, right? He was 9 for 11 for 141 passing yards with no turnovers. So Daniel Jones, even though a lot of people were shocked that they took him, the Giants scouting department must have seen something because thus far, he's had a really good uh, preseason. Now out to Oakland. It looks like Helmet Gate might finally be coming to a close, which is just ridiculous anyway. But Antonio Brown apparently is now practicing with the team. He's wearing the new helmet, even though he's filed a second grievance with the NFL. Let's just get past this thing and get back onto the field, please. Jeez. All right. But now let's talk about some of the games. Last night, we saw another injury to Panthers quarterback Cam Newton. He left the game after uh, apparently injuring his foot, and then he left the stadium later in a walking boot. And uh, there's not a whole lot of information right now on the extent or severity of the injury. I guess we'll find out in the days to come. We can only hope that the walking boot was a precautionary measure. But the question is, and this is real now, is Cam Newton becoming fragile? He's constantly having either serious or nagging injuries, and let's also be real. Other than his MVP season when he reached the Super Bowl and the Panthers got blown out by the Broncos, he's been inconsistent with his production. I'll admit that he hasn't had the best weapons, but the elite quarterbacks we just finished talking about, Tom Brady, find a way to succeed no matter what. Cam Newton hasn't been able to do that. He's also had the benefit of relative coaching stability and numerous great defenses. At what point will we realize and or admit that Cam Newton's just not that guy. Last night, Baltimore Ravens might have found themselves a diamond in the rough at the QB position. Penn State rookie Trace McSorley got most of the reps, and he went 19 for 28 for 203 yards with two touchdowns and one more rushing and no picks. I guess the question now becomes, could Trace McSorley eventually become Lamar Jackson's backup? He'll definitely be cheaper than Robert Griffin III, and Robert Griffin III also constantly has injury concerns. We'll see. Last but not least, Jacksonville Jags lost their game against the Miami Dolphins. Go figure, right? Nick Foles looked good at times, but you can still see there was rust, and he's you know, still trying to develop things with his teammates. He was 6 for 10 for 48 yards and one touchdown. And that one touchdown pass looked real good on, on a rollout and then basically hit uh, D.B. Westbrook in the back corner of the end zone wide open. So it was a good-looking play and one interception. Now, in Leonard Fournette's first action this preseason, he had seven carries for 27 yards. 
I don't know if it's a function of him just not being as good as he was supposed to be running the football coming out of college, or is it a function of his offensive line not being good enough or not blocking well enough for him. But I will say the bright spot for him was the fact that he had two catches for 19 yards, right? We know there's been a point of emphasis for him this offseason is trying to become a more complete back so that he could stay on the field for three downs in today's NFL versus just being a, you know, a two-down guy for being a pure runner. So we know that he can exponentially increase his value and his production if he becomes better at catching the football out of the backfield. Um, another major bright spot for the Jags was rookie quarterback line, excuse me, rookie linebacker Josh Allen, who basically just keeps making splash, splash plays. He had four tackles with two of those for loss. He could be a real impact defender this season. This guy, if you watch him, he is so fast off the ball, and he's constantly getting into the backfield making plays. And for a team that prides itself on defense, having two bookend shutdown corners, as well as having a dominant defensive line, now being able to sure up that second level in the linebacking core and being able to use him, Josh Allen, and his athleticism in different ways, whether it's rushing the passer, help against the run, or dropping into pass coverage, you know, he could be a guy of their dreams and he could be a lot of help for the Jags this season. So looking forward to seeing what he's going to do going forward. Joining me today on the format to talk all things college football is a special guest, Bleacher Report senior college football writer and co-host of daily radio show XL Primetime on 1010XL Radio in Jacksonville, Florida, Matt Hayes. Thanks for joining me today, Matt. Sure, Bruce. My pleasure. With uh, college football season just a few days away, let's jump right into it. So give me about uh, three quick major storylines to watch for this season. I, I think it's clearly Alabama and Clemson, and, and can they get back to the college football playoff, and will they play again uh, for a fifth straight season and, and in that playoff, and, you know, what happens? You know, can, does Clemson finally put the stake in the ground and say, you know, we are the new big dog in college football, or can Alabama reclaim? I, I think I think you, you still got to look at, okay, Alabama still has seemed to be, just because they've done it for such a long time, but Clemson, you know, Clemson wins again. They back up last year. I think you got to, you know, the mail's going to be passed. There's no doubt about that. I think, you know, another another storyline to watch. I think it's got kind of got an Alabama twist to it. Is Jalen Hurts at Oklahoma now, the new quarterback at Oklahoma? You know, can he do what the two previous quarterbacks before him did, and that's you know, lead lead the Sooners to the playoff? That's you know, Kyler Murray and Baker Mayfield, and both those guys, of course, won the Heisman Trophy as well. So, and went I mean, on to be it, number it, one it, pick. Brian went on to be the number one overall pick. I, I don't think Jalen Hurts is going to be a number one overall pick, but do I think Jalen Hurts could put up some big yards and some big touchdowns and lead Oklahoma to the playoff? I absolutely think that. And could he win the Heisman? Absolutely. So quick question in regards to that. If he has those tremendous type of numbers following in the footsteps, as you just said, of uh, Kyler Murray and a Baker Mayfield, does that say that, Oklahoma's recruiting top-tier talent at the quarterback position, or does it more show that it's Lincoln Riley's system? How do we judge guys that come out of there? 
Well, I, I think it's a little of both because I, I think you'd be foolish to ignore the reality that Baker Mayfield is an elite talent. Baker Mayfield's taking the NFL by storm right now. I think we'd be foolish to think that Kyler Murray's not an elite talent. And we've seen what Jalen Hurts has done at Alabama. We've seen, you know, what, 20, 28 and 2 as a starter, or 27 and 2 as a starter. It's hard to ignore stuff like that. Now, that said, I think what Lincoln Riley is doing at Oklahoma is just phenomenal. I think the way he's developing quarterbacks and he's putting those guys in position to have so much success, he's clearly doing it better than anyone right now. I agree. Um, so I, I, think, I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, I also believe that when you start looking at Lincoln Riley, it's interesting how none of these guys have been true recruits. Now, all three of those guys, all three of these guys will be transferred. Now, you can call them recruits because you had to recruit Baker Mayfield to go there, and you had to recruit Kyler Murray to go there, but they will all start, they all three of these guys will have started out at, at different schools before they get to Oklahoma. Great point, great point. So, now let's uh, transition a little bit. Um, we you've addressed who the big dogs are, as we know, Clemson, the Bama. Uh, now, give me a couple of sleeper teams and a couple of sleeper players, really, to watch out for this season. Well, I mean, I, I think Oregon's a team that you ought to look at just simply because Justin Herbert, I think, is a guy that by the end of the year could be like the number one draft prospect as far as quarterbacks, maybe even number one overall. Anyway, just a terrific player, and if you haven't seen Justin Herbert play. Uh, you know, go on YouTube and type in Justin Herbert. He, he just throws a beautiful ball, and he, and he can make every throw. Um, he's just your prototypical six foot five, two hundred twenty five pound quarterback. A guy that just can do a lot in the passing game. Uh, and I think you know, when you look at what Mario has done there at Oregon, in such a short time, he's a year or two now. Mario Cristobal, uh, he's recruiting well there. I think he's got those guys playing really hard, um, and they're starting to get those elite offensive and defensive linemen, I think, which is what, you know, the game is one of the lines of scrimmage, especially in, in the major conferences. And I think the Pac-12 is lagging so far behind. And part of the reason, I truly believe, is not only because USC is lagging behind, but I think because on the line of scrimmage, the only team in that conference that will really get after you on the line of scrimmage is Washington. Washington and Stanford. Yeah. And, and you know, I, you know I, I think USC – in the right situation, we'll be able to recruit those lines of scrimmage. And whether that right situation is with Clay Helton or with Urban Meyer next year, whatever happens in that whole situation. Um, but Oregon is getting there. And that, that, that's kind of a long story short, uh, Bruce, is Oregon is getting there. And I think Mario's ability to recruit uh, the lines of scrimmage and to get them stronger, I think it's going to be a critical factor. That's great. And that's so funny that you mentioned Oregon and you talked about them at length because I was, I was going into my next question of, can USC kind of get back to where most people think they should be as one of the glamour programs in college football and lift the conference back up? And why are they still so important as seemingly the face of the conference, even though over the last maybe four or five years, Washington's been the class of the Pac-12? Well, I think USC, when you start talking about USC and the, and the how and the why, I think you got to look at recruiting. They don't recruit like they did under Pete Carroll. Mm -hmm. um, they, they're not even close to that. In fact, if you're looking at the 2020 class, which will be signed in December and February, I was looking at this today. It just blew my mind. Right now, USC is 63rd. Wow. Right? 63rd. Wow. And they've got like a bunch of, I think they have like about 10, 10 commitments, and I think six of them are three stars or worse. I mean, the reality is if Pete Carroll recruited a three-star guy, it's because he, a, he knew more than other people. Or B, it was a guy that he thought he could develop into an elite player. Right. And uh, I, it, it's strange to me 
that USC is at that point right now. Last year, I think they were 19th or 20th overall in recruiting. And that's just, if you're in that footprint, that geographic footprint of Los Angeles, Southern California, man, you have to have a top 10 class or even better, top five class all the time, like, like Pete Carroll did. So I think that's, that's the genesis of why they struggled so much. Uh, you know, the part two was the quarterback. And I, I think JT Daniels is a very good quarterback. I think he's an elite quarterback, but I'm not sure this staff is going to get it out of him. You know, this is a joke, you know, I've been having all, all offseason. And I think you and I actually talked about this at, at 10-10-XO one time during a break. I mean, if it doesn't work out for Clay Helton right now, you, you better believe that USC is going to offer Urban Meyer everything he wants to come coach them. And then you're going to see a guy that has proven he can recruit Yep. recruit that footprint, that LA yep. footprint, it'll be scary. It'll be absolutely scary. And if that happens, he is going to win another title, and he's going to be the first guy to do it at three schools, and that Urban Meyer-Nick Saban argument for best coach is going to be right back. So, but well, yeah. I, I think it's, well, I think you got to put Dabble in there right now, and I also think that there's no doubt that will happen, and I think that will be the thing that will pull Urban back in the, into the game. I think he wants to coach again. He's a young man. He's a terrific coach. Mm-hmm. You can yep. say all you want about him off the field. He's had a lot of problems off the field, and I get all that. Um, but the guy can coach, and people will look past that because he can coach yep. and because he wins championships. Yep, absolutely. So we talked about USC. So as that happened, we obviously have to talk about the flip side and because I'm kind of a homer for this team. Give me a quick outlook on Notre Dame for this season. Well, we talked about the lines of scrimmage earlier, and, and I think that's why Notre Dame has gotten <coughs> excuse me, Bruce, why they've gotten so much better since that. Remember a few years ago when there was this idea that Brian Kelly was coaching for his job, which is just laughable. Yes, but I remember. I think they got better. I think they got better on the lines of scrimmage, and that's why they became a more complete program. When you can do that, well, when you can trade blows with the heavyweight teams and the lines of scrimmage, you know, I think Everything changes in the way you do things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excuse me. I'm battling, a, I'm battling the science section here. Sorry about that. And, and I think, you know, they, they have the quarterback now, Ian Book, I think, that can play smart, protect the ball, and make plays when it's third and make a play. When you got to have a play, he's a guy that can do that. Nice. So, with Notre Dame in mind, their arguably biggest and most difficult game this year is at Georgia. So we'll kind of uh, go over to Georgia here. Is this the year that Georgia finally beats Alabama? Kirby Smart left Alabama, obviously went to Georgia, and built that program in Alabama's image in terms of size, strength, physicality, speed, all those things. And they normally play him to a standstill, but somehow haven't been over to, been able to get over the hump in the last couple of years. Is this the season you think they finally get it done? You know, all offseason I've been thinking, I'm still going to bet, on Alabama, I'm still going to bet on Clemson. And the closer we get to the season, we're now, you know, days away now. First, I'm starting to feel Georgia. This might be it for Georgia. I think this might be the year. I mean, they're, they're, their offensive line is better than anybody in the, in the country by a long way. Defensively, they're, they're very, very good defensively. I think really their only their only flaw right now is, is pass catcher. I mean, Robinson's going to be a good player, but I think – if they can get to the point where where Alabama is every year, where you know you lose somebody, but you know what, you got a great recruit coming in. They've got a couple freshmen that can be really good receivers. If they can get to that point where those guys are making plays, and Fromm will make them better because he's so good at at putting the ball where it needs to be. Yeah, I, I mean, I think Georgia Georgia could be a team at the end of the year that they're either number one or number two 
in the, in the playoff rankings, and they're in that playoff, and, and it's and it's basically theirs to lose. So, is there anything for you to the fact that a, a former Saban assistant has never beaten him head to head? No, I don't buy that. You know, you know what that is, Bruce. More than anything, <laughs> all those guys that haven't been able to beat Saban head to head, Saban's had better players. That now, helps a lot. Saban has better players in Georgia right now. I think they're very close. Okay, got it. So also on the SEC that, front, it's always funny that it's always funny that we ask that people bring that up. It, right. It, nobody ever says right. Oh, by the way, Saban's got way better players than all those guys too. Yeah, he's got pretty good players. <laughs> also on the SEC front, um, I personally, I'm not an SEC guy. Um, I've gotten on them constantly for years about their terrible and lazy out of conference scheduling on the road. Recently, Bama has scheduled uh, home and home games against Wisconsin. Arkansas has scheduled Notre Dame. Do you see this as a trend for the SEC teams going forward? Because for me, not only do they schedule poorly out of conference, in terms of on the road, for the longest, they never went west of Dallas or north of Missouri. Do you see this becoming a trend going forward? Well, I wouldn't put Alabama, LSU, uh, Georgia, and Tennessee in that category. Everybody else, I would. Everyone else in that league, I definitely would. Um, I definitely see that as a trend, right? Uh, uh, I keep wanting to call you Brian, but I have no idea why. I definitely see it as a trend, and I can tell you why. You know, when the, when the CFB contract ends in 2023, mm-hmm. it's going to change. There's going to be a change. And it's just a matter of how many teams, whether it's six, whether it's eight, or whether it's, you know, I mean, hold on to your hat, 16. I think eight is perfect. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's arguments for both. I think there's, there, there are purists right now that think six is the best way because it doesn't minimize what you're doing in the regular season, and it also rewards two teams with a buy. Five, the two best teams. That works for so, me also. I, I think either way, it, it's going to happen, so you're going to have to beef up your schedule. You're going to have to beef up your non-conference schedule. Um, there, you know, Nick Saban said for years he wants nine SEC games, and he wants ten total uh, Power 5 games either way. So if it's still only eight SEC games, he still wants ten total Power 5 games for each of the teams in the SEC. And I think, you know, no other coach in the league wants that because nobody has the talent that he has. But I think you're going to see more and more, not just the SEC, but the ACC, the Big 12, the Big 10, the Pac-12. The idea is going to be the better your schedule is, the better chance you have of getting one of those six or eight or even, you know, like you said, even 16 spots. And I think that's why lately, even this summer, why we saw this big push of non-college games being announced over like a three or four week period. It was just all over the place. There were great games. and I mean, even Florida was going 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 west Mississippi, going out to Colorado, going to Texas. And so it, it, I think it's going to be better for the game. It's going to be better for the fan watching on TV, and it's going to make it a lot more exciting. Nice. And my last question, um, I've been a guy since uh, the early to mid-2000s. I've kind of liked the underdog. I jumped on Boise State when I saw what they were doing. And, you know, I, I like to see the underdog kind of upset the traditional powers. So now that team for me, especially living in Florida, is UCF. So my question is, do you think that, of course, with plenty of help from above, if UCF takes care of business, do you feel like this is the year that they could break through? Or do you feel like no matter what they do, they're going to get jerked by the committee? I think no matter what they do, they're not getting it. It's just not going to happen first. I, I mean, and, and they're using one of your guys. Wimbush will start as the quarterback mm-hmm. at UCF. That was just announced. The former yeah, Notre Dame quarterback. He will be the quarterback this year. I, I honestly, Bruce, I think they could go twelve and zero, and I, I can guarantee you again, they're not getting it. It's just, I, I think the reality is they're playing in a conference that's a lot easier road than any other conference, any of the other Power Five conferences, and that's going to be the argument right now against them. And, and, and until, and I know they played Stanford to start the season, they could beat 
telling you, it's just not going to be something that's going to, the committee is going, to, is going to deal with. Now, it, when we go to six teams or eight teams, then that's a different story because then it'll be a, then you'll say, okay, well, you've got this many teams and you can give them a shot. But it, it, until then, I just don't see it. I really don't, Bruce. Okay, so finally, with that... I'm how not do, saying that's fair. Listen, I'm not saying right. that's fair. I don't think it's fair, but I'm telling you, I, I don't see that committee doing that. I, I don't see it either, and I, I definitely don't think it's fair. And the last thing is, how do you suggest that they get out of this spot that they're stuck in where they're being derided for the schedule, but most Power 5 teams find it a no-win situation to play them because if you beat them, you were supposed right. to beat them. If you lose, you lost to a group of five team. And, you know, you look right. at Florida. Florida didn't want to give them the home-and-home. Home. Uh, they offered them. UCF originally said no, but now they're considering taking that with the neutral side game. Even though UCF is a program that's building, um, they have a three-year wait list for their uh, home game season tickets. You know, they're really on the rise. How do you think they get out of the spot that they're in? They can't. I mean, the only way they get out is just by joining a Power Five conference, and I don't see that happening. Right, they have to be invited, right? It's they'd have to be invited. Right. There's the only conference they could really go to would be the Big Twelve, and there's there's really no reason for the Big Twelve to add them because why would the Big Twelve add them and and further divide their pie? There's Mm -hmm. there's really no sense in um and because the Big Twelve keeps getting teams in the conference, the college football playoff too. So it's not like you need to add somebody to strengthen your conference. They're, right. getting, they're getting teams in with one loss. So I, I, I think there's really no there's no advantage for anyone to add that. I guess they're just going to have to continue to build the program and wait it out to see what happens. Hope for the best, yeah. Hope yes, for the best. indeed. Yes, indeed. But thank you for joining me today on the show, Matt. I know you got a lot of things to do. I'm going to let you run. Uh, appreciate your commentary. I hope to do this again with you sometime, maybe before the uh, the uh, first college football playoff rankings come out, and uh, we'll talk again. Okay, Bruce, my pleasure. All right, thanks so much. Have a great one. So let me start with this story. When I was moving into my house, my brother was moving out of his at about the same time. So in his garage, he had this nice, really nice wooden dining room table with like four or six, I can't remember, chairs to go around it. The table was in real good condition. And so he says to me, hey, Bruce, you want this table? I don't feel like taking it with me and I'll just get a new one and have them deliver it to the new house. So I'm like, yeah, thanks. I'm thinking, great. I just saved a few hundred bucks. So I bring it to the house and it's looking good and the table's standing strong and everything. After a few weeks though, one of the chairs gets kind of wobbly, right? So I lift it up and I look under the chair and one of the legs is loose. So, okay, I think to myself, no problem. You know, I saved a couple hundred bucks. Everything looked good overall when I got the table and the chairs and I knew it wasn't brand new. So what do I do? I grab the multi-tool and I tighten the bolt that's holding the leg in place. I put the chair back down, the chair's good as new. No problem. At least that's what I thought. So not too long after that, a few days or a week, I sit down in the chair. Suddenly I'm not in the chair anymore, I'm on the floor. And uh, suddenly the chair no longer has four legs, it now has three. Now we could chalk this up to my lack of mechanical aptitude, I'm more of a tech guy, but that's not really the point. The point is, That one chair was damaged goods, even though it was at a great price, free. Why am I telling you a story about a chair on a sports podcast? Follow me here. That chair 
was Boogie Cousins. The Lakers got a player that used to be great, just like I got a chair that used to be solid. But the chair, like Boogie, was no longer in its prime. I ended up putting the chair leg back on, but that chair is never going to be the same, just like Boogie's never going to be the same. For a big man in today's NBA, they need to be more mobile than ever, offensively and defensively, and they need to cover more ground in the half court than they've ever had to before. First, Boogie tears his Achilles in New Orleans two years ago. Tough break. But a lot of players now with modern medicine and training and science and all that stuff recover well from a torn Achilles. They may not be the exact same player, but a lot of them can come back to play and sometimes play at a high level. Cool. Golden State Warriors gives him a shot, and he plays pretty well, right? 16 points a game, 8 rebounds a game in limited minutes last season. I think he only played like 30 minutes a game, right? So that's a far cry from, you know, the 43 to 45 that he played in his prime in like Sacramento and early on when he was in New Orleans. He was never a great defender, but that's not his game anyway. So I don't think Golden State brought him there expecting him to be that. All right. Then, in the beginning of the playoffs, he tears his quad. He has to miss a big chunk of that. Another leg injury. After the season, he leaves in free agency because Golden State really can't pay him too much. And he gets picked up by the Lakers. He's hoping that he can get back to form, have a really good year, and hopefully get a strong contract, right? Okay. A couple of weeks after arriving with the Lakers, he rips his knee up, tears his Achilles, before training camp even starts. Now, that is a ridiculously tough break. Do we see a pattern here, though? Major lower extremity injuries racking up at an alarming rate on the same player? The Sacramento Kings, Boogie's original team, which, let me tell you, he got busy for that team. I think over his first six or seven years, he averaged uh, 21 and close to 11. And over like the last three years there, he was averaging like 26 and 12. So he was doing work. He was all NBA at the forward spot. I mean, Boogie, he's, when he's been at his best in the league, he's been great. But they didn't want to pay him when he was up for the Supermax. So guess what? They traded him to New Orleans. They got out from under that. Now, it looks like they got out just in time before everything pretty much fell apart for Boogie, and they would have been stuck on the hook for a contract for a player who couldn't play and provide them anything, right? Okay, so now it looks like any chance that Boogie might have gotten at another large contract is pretty much gone. And it's not just because of the injuries, it's because of the game itself has changed so much, right? Not necessarily for the better. I guess it depends on how you look at it. You know, a lot of the younger millennial type viewers like it. It's fast paced. Defense is limited. There's very little real post play, very little rim protection. So if you get past your man on offense, there's generally not much behind them in terms of protecting the rim. So you see a lot of flashy dunks, a lot of, you know, uh, circus style layups and all of that. Or, you know, you have pretty much a, a free run to the basket to do whatever, right? So I don't know if that's better or worse. I think it's worse, but, you know, clearly the NBA is doing well with it. So a lot of people think it's better and that's fine. But these changes in the game have pretty much phased out the traditional dominant big man in favor of more wing play and more three point shooting, which everyone is trying to go to this three point shooting model. And I'm just digressing here for a moment, but 
it doesn't make sense to go to a model when you don't have the personnel to execute it, right? Even Golden State, one of the best shooting teams in the league, last season was only middle of the pack and three-pointers attempted. Then you get a team like Houston who keeps setting the record for three-point attempts and makes in a season, and it's not getting them anywhere. So the point is, a lot of teams are, are mocking this, not mocking, but mimicking this method, but it doesn't work because they don't have the personnel. And secondarily, let me just make another comment on all this three-point shooting. It's such a lazy way to coach. To me, it says that the coaches nowadays, I mean, every league is copycat, but the coaches nowadays are even more copycat, and they lack the acumen to be creative in their offensive sets and really, you know, do a lot of things. Most of the league is pick and roll or it's drive and kick, as in penetrate into the lane, and in the event, the unlikely event, that the defense collapses, you kick it out to an open three-point shooter, preferably in the corner, since the corner three is the highest percentage three-point shot on the floor. So, to me, that says these coaches are just lazy. They're not doing a great job with coming up with creative ways to to score and execute in the offense, in the half-court set. And also, that makes today's players lazy because they have to digest less in terms of plays and they have to be less cerebral in terms of how to do things. So it's like one of two things. Pick and roll, look for the open three, or go for a dunk, or drive and kick for an open corner three. Pretty lazy. Anyway, that's my take on that. But back to Boogie, I feel so bad for this dude and what's happened to him. And uh, I got a new anthem for you, Boogie. Tell him, Saigon. So another big issue in the NBA lately has been Carmelo Anthony. A week or two ago, he did a sit-down with Stephen A. Smith where he kind of detailed that he feels like he should still be in the league. We see a lot of videos of him working out, showing that he can still really play. He can put the ball in the basket. That's something he never had a problem with. And uh, he was saying, you know, he couldn't understand why he got cut from the Rockets and that, you know, he, he just can't figure out why he's having a hard time. He still feels like he's got a lot of basketball left. Obviously, he loves the game and can play it at a high level. The guy's going to be a Hall of Famer, probably first ballot. Now, another side note, when people talk about Hall of Fame in basketball, I look at that very differently than I do in, say, football, because it seems like, to me, there's a lot of guys in the Basketball Hall of Fame. Notice I said basketball, not NBA Hall of Fame, who probably shouldn't be there, right? So if you're a really good player, like really good, you're probably going to get into the Hall of Fame, right? Anyway, so Carmelo Anthony is a 10-time former All-Star, six-time All-NBA small forward. And like we said, he's still without a team and kind of facing the prospect of his NBA career being over, even though we know he knows he can still play at times, even at a high level, right? So the argument is, the game has changed around him and he hasn't adapted, right? So we know Melo has always been an outstanding one-on-one scorer, right? He's a guy who can always get his own shot and more often than not, he can hit those shots. And his entire career, he's been dominant in the mid-range, which in the current NBA seems to be a huge problem, all right? 
with analytics controlling more and more teams, there just doesn't seem to be room for a guy who doesn't subscribe to the three-pointer or dunk with nothing in between philosophy. Um, in today's game, spacing and ball movement seems to be paramount for most teams because, again, like I said earlier, they're always looking for an open three. So extra pass to get an open corner three. Drive and kick, corner three. So spacing to get shots off so defenses can't really collapse as well. And then uh, ball movement to, to get an open look at a three. So the analytics will tell you the mid-range jump shot is the hardest to make and has the least value. So you get a high percentage shot, which basketball has always been about, by getting to the rim and getting a dunk or a layup. Or you get an open look at a three, which percentage-wise is probably a little lower. But if you make it, you get an extra point for that. So that's kind of where the analytics come in on that. Anyway, Melo, in his style of play, he seems like he kind of got left behind. Oddly enough, though, it seems to me anyway, some of the most popular and dynamic players in the league today are just that kind of player. Russell Westbrook, James Harden, dominant, ball dominant, ISO type players who don't necessarily shoot a high percentage, but both of them shoot volume, both of them score a lot. And I guess the difference is, like, with a guy like Westbrook, he's either shooting threes, which he's usually missing, or getting to the rim and getting a layup or a dunk. Not a lot of mid-range. And James Harden is usually shooting his step-back-slash-travel three-pointer or getting to the rim and getting fouled, which, you know, analytics say they would rather. Um, but the next argument against Melo being in the league, according to the, those in the know, is that he doesn't play defense. Okay. Welcome to the club. Here's a list of great players today. I'm just going to give you a list of great players in the current NBA. LeBron, Steph, Harden, Westbrook, Lillard, Kyrie, Kemba Walker. You notice anything? None of these dudes play D. And every one of them is an all-NBA player. So what kind of argument is it to say Carmelo doesn't defend so he doesn't deserve to be in the NBA anymore? Man, cut the crap. The whole NBA itself has legislated defense out because they want higher scoring. They want a faster pace. So they don't want defense anymore. They've been doing that. They've been legislating it out slowly but surely since they got rid of the hand check to allow Michael Jordan a little more freedom. Not necessarily that he needed it because he was going to find a way to dominate you anyway. But when he complained about it, they, they worked that out. And then slowly but surely, they changed the defensive rules. They don't want anyone playing defense. So this nonsense about Carmelo not playing D is part of the reason he's not in the league. Man, you can you can hold that. I'm not trying to hear it. That excuse is bogus. Can Melo still score? Oh, yeah. Melo can still score. He might not be in his prime anymore, but he is still potent. He can put the ball in the basket. So apparently the way he scores is the problem now. I mean, I thought. I mean, obviously, I never played ball on any kind of high level or anything, but I like to think I know the game pretty well. It was my impression the object of the game was to get buckets so that at the end of the game, your team has more points than the other team. Maybe not. I don't know. But at the end of the day, I guess the simple fact is, for some reason, the powers that be don't want Melo in the league, even though he can help a lot of teams. And when the powers that be get something in their heads... Then they start floating narratives, whether true or false. And if they don't want you there, you're just not going to be there. So I got to say, we know Melo can still play. We know he probably deserves to still be in the league, but it's probably a wrap for him at this time. 
Now, if he wanted to, he could go overseas for a few more years till his body can't do it anymore. You know, Europe or China, dominate, make a few million more bucks. I mean, I don't think money's a problem to him, but if he wants to make a little more money, he can go to one of these other leagues, dominate, be a hero, uh, you know, get the adulation, but that's up to him. But at the end of the day, I think his NBA time is done, and it's a sad thing. I gave you fair warning, beware. I gave you fair warning, beware. Before we get up out of here, you know what time it is. It's time for the Bruce. So I was thinking about this. Um, I didn't include it in the NFL segment because I wanted to kind of talk about this. And I'm going to go a little bit off the top here. Um, the Cowboys yesterday did what I said they should have done all along. And that's offer to pay Ezekiel Elliott before they paid Dak Prescott. Because the numbers show that Dak Prescott is not that guy. He's not a guy at the quarterback position that can carry a team and truly lead you to winning something without optimal circumstances. And the number one optimal circumstance for Dak Prescott is that running game led by Zeke Elliott, who has led the league in rushing in two of his three seasons and would have in the third if he hadn't been suspended for six games. At any rate, the Cowboys offered to make Zeke the second highest paid running back in football behind Todd Gurley, which I know is not something that they wanted to do because, again, they got to pay other guys. It's a hard cap league. And they see that, you know, paying the running back in today's NFL just doesn't work. But they also know that they built their team around Zeke. And if they want to be successful, they're going to have to pay him. So we haven't heard yet if Zeke has accepted the deal and it looks unlikely that he will, because apparently he wants to reset the market and be the highest paid running back. Now, let me say And I think I've said this before, in a game as violent as the National Football League, where literally not even one game, but one play could be the end of your career, um, you want to maximize your earnings at every possible turn. And I get that. But how much do you really need? Like, what is the need to always, for these guys, be the highest paid at their position? What am I missing? What am I not seeing? I get that Zeke wants to be compensated, he wants the security, and they are offering him that by making him the second highest paid player at the position, which is still a whole lot of money. So I'm not sure exactly what the deal is with having to be the highest paid. Is it because you think you're the best? Is that what it has to do with? Does it have to do with the players coming after you? I'm not exactly sure, and I'd love for somebody to sit down and explain that to me. But at this point, Zeke, right now, I've been you know, banging the drum for you to get paid, give Zeke his money, give Zeke his money. And I'm still banging the drum for that. But now they're offering to give you your money, take the money, because I think at this point, if you don't take it, you can continue to hold out, but they still hold the cards because they cannot pay you this year. And if you want to hold out next year, they cannot pay you again. And then they can franchise you after that. So really, at this point, you don't have the power. This is not the NBA, right? So I say take the money, say thank you, get back to working out with your teammates. And as much as I hate to say it, the Cowboys can be dangerous here this year. They can be a real threat. So go ahead, get back with your teammates and get back to working towards being the team that you guys know you can be. I think at this point, 
it's just extra greedy to try and say, well, I have to be the highest paid at my position. You have earned the money that they're trying to give you, and I think you'll continue to earn it. But go ahead, take the money, get back in uniform, get back with your teammates and make it happen. I totally disagree with this if you continue to hold out because you no longer hold the cards. And at that point, I'm thinking that they're just going to continue to decrease the offers. They'll pay the other guys and they'll be less and less for you. So it's up to you, Zeke. Uh, you probably won't hear this, but it's up to you. But I say take the money and get back to business because it's real good money. They didn't try to do you dirty. They didn't try to shaft you. So go ahead and make it happen. That's this week's episode of the Bruce Breakdown, and that's the end of this week's episode of the format. So thanks to my guest, Matt Hayes, for joining me to talk about college football. appreciate that. Thank you to all you returning listeners. Uh, and if you're a new listener, thanks for tuning in and checking me out. Uh, if you're listening on an Apple podcast platform or a Google podcast platform or anywhere that you can review, I just ask that you rate and review, rate and review, rate and review. Uh, you know, give me those five stars or whatever the rating method is. Uh, I want to continue to bring this to you. Um, if you know people who like uh, sports talk radio or sports podcast, get the pod out to them. Let's continue to get this in as many sets of fresh ears as we can. And uh, I want to continue just bringing you this content uh, whenever I can. Um, thanks again for listening. And if you want to reach out to me, tell me what you liked, what you didn't like, where I was right, where I was wrong. Any suggestions for topics on next week's pod, what have you, you can reach me on Twitter at Bruce F.A. Hope. That's at Bruce F.A. Hope. Or you can reach me on Instagram at The Format Podcast. So you can definitely hit me up there even if you just want to shoot the breeze because I love interacting with people. I love talking sports. Um, so, again, thank you and peace. I'm out. <laughs>